I hope you'll join me now. Shalom, shalom, holy friends. I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy to see you. And how great is today? We're all alive today. It's great to be alive today, um, even with um, all the challenges in the world and in our own lives, uh, that we're all alive and in a learning space together. How wonderful is that? And um, I'm particularly excited about this topic today because many of us, I think, are already trying to do a lot of kindness in our lives. Maybe you're not even trying, it's just natural. Um, and maybe you're really trying. But knowing the people here, I know that this is very much a part of all of our lives. And what's exciting about today is it's not about talking about doing more. What's my next big project? What's my next big initiative? Um, how do I stretch myself? But it's actually about the more gentle and subtle ways that we can integrate some of the spirit of chesed um, in a more subtle way into our lives. Now, Derek Eretz, a terrible translation is good manners, but I'm going to put good manners there because I think what that probably inspires for you, you can nod your head or not. What it inspires for me is sitting at the table as a four-year-old told, being told I have a napkin on my lap. <laughs> um, like if I didn't have a napkin on my lap, that was like a big deal. Um, so, or like where you place your fork. But that is not what Derek Eretz means, So as we will see. So let's start with a little poll question, just to kind of get the reflective juices flowing before we jump into some text here. How do you think about good manners? One, I was raised to have good manners, and I think etiquette and being polite are extremely important. Option two, I think we should just be real and not try to make things polite. <laughs> Option three, I don't think much about politeness and etiquette. There's bigger acts of kindness to think about. All right, friends, let's see where you land here. Um, number two and three are different. Number two was a little bit of uh, opposition. Oh, okay. Very good. All right. Number 80% think good manners and etiquette are very important. 20% um, don't really worry about being polite and nobody thinks, um, you know, why even think about this stuff? Okay. Very cool. So let's dive in here a little bit. Yes. People in poverty need money. Sick people in hospitals need more visits and the elderly need better care. These are big hefty lifts that we need to make to be agents of kindness in supporting those who are suffering. But there's also little kind gestures we can make for every person we encounter, no matter what their situation may be. We are all taught as children to be polite, to say please and thank you, to hold doors for others, and to have dinner table manners. But how can we take this further? 
more than us be us just being quote unquote religious, God, according to the Jewish tradition, wants us to be decent. The prophet Hosea says, for it is kindness that I desire and not sacrifice. Right. That, of course, is might in 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 contemporary times feel um gives give off one kind of message. But think of this in a in a in a temple period where people are bringing animal offerings. And God is saying, no, no, don't want your animal offering, want your kindness. On this verse, the rabbis taught over here in Avot the Rabbi Natan, right? So that, as you know, the Kotel there, it was not a wall of the temple, the Beit HaMikdash. It was a wall of the base of the foundation, right? The bottom layer where the Beit HaMikdash stood um, higher upon. Nonetheless, that part is kind of the closest to the Kaddish Kaddashim, the Holy of Holies spot. And that's why people um, celebrate that spot the most. In any case, this is kind of a radical midrash based on that teaching of the prophet Hosea. Once as Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was coming from Yerushalayim, Rabbi Yehoshua followed him and behold, the temple was in ruins. Woe unto us, Rabbi Yehoshua cried, that this, the place where the sins of Israel were atoned for is laid waste. My son, Rav Yochanan said to him, be not grieved. We have another atonement as effective as this. And what is it? It is acts of loving kindness, as it is said, for it is kindness that I desire and not sacrifice. Now, friends, this midrash is relevant to our holiday season. Why? Because what Rav Yoshua is talking about is the Yom Kippur atonement service, right? The Kohen Gadol, the high priest goes into the Beit HaMikdash, and in a way that sounds like Jesus dying for our sins, the, the, the Kohen, the, the high priest, goes in and atones for Am Yisrael. Now, he's not supposed to die, um, but he atones for the collective people, right? And that's kind of a little bit of the spirit of the Yom Kippur service. We have our own teshuvah, our own repentance, but also there is a shaliach tzibor, a leader of the prayer service, or the Kohen Gadol in the temple, who is taking the sins of, of the collective upon themselves to atone for the collective, right? We stand as individuals before the creator of the world, but we stand as a nation. That's why we're, we want to go to prayer service. We don't want to just go meditate in the forest, even if that's more powerful for us, because the high holidays has an individualistic component, but it also has a deep collectivist component as well. And so Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says to Rabbi Yoshua, ah, you might've thought at Yom Kippur, we can only atone through going to this Beit HaMikdash with Kohen Gadol. What are we going to do? Like our nation is destroyed. And he says, don't worry. These acts of kindness are have equal weight, equal weight to those korbanot, towards those sacrifices, towards that service that we cherished so much 2000 years ago and earlier. And yet the verse itself goes further than that. It doesn't say it's equal. It says, God only wants this kindness, not the sacrifice, which is a deeper polemic from the prophets. So let's consider um, this midrash in terms of the value of respect. The wise person does not speak before one who is greater than them in wisdom or in age. This refers to Moshe, as it says. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had told Moshe. And they performed the signs in the sight of the people. And who was most fitting to speak, Moshe or Aaron? Obviously, Moshe, 
But Moshe heard the words from the mouth of the Almighty, while our, our own heard them only from the mouth of Moshe. But th thus said Moshe to himself, shall I then speak while my older brother is standing by? He therefore told our own to speak. And it is for this reason that it is said, Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had told Moshe. Now, this may feel like a very archaic form of respect, right? Respect your elders, like let your older siblings speak before you, right? I don't think many of us related to our siblings in such a way. My older brother is going to speak before me. Like, I don't, that doesn't you know, resonate for me at all. Um, but Moshe, who is clearly closer to God than Aaron, the Midrash says, had a respect for his brother because he was older and let him speak first. Now, let us take away that aspect of older in years, because maybe that resonates, maybe it doesn't. Um, think about um, someone might have a boss who's younger than them. Someone might um, have a relationship with a sibling who's older where the younger commands a little bit more respect in some ways, right? Someone might have relationships where the age doesn't matter at all. You have a friendship where there's a 30 age gap. In fact, many of my friends, I, I probably have more friends who are in their seventies than I do friends in their thirties. Um, that just feels like where I'm at in my life. And like, there is an age thing there, but it's also kind of not there in some ways. I mean, it wouldn't be a friendship if they're like, I'm your elder, like I'm going to command respect as your elder. Like that's not the relationship we have. And so um, nonetheless, I think this Midrash is powerful because Moshe says like, oh, there's a natural power dynamic here because I'm the one who hears God and you don't. And yet I want to be sure to infuse respect for you. And so you're going to speak first. And so we might want to check the power dynamics we're a part of. Like, where is it age? Where is it um, intellect? Where is it kind of political, right? Um, and who speaks first? And how do we think about that in terms of um, respect? And let, we can move beyond speech as well. Who speaks first? That's only one kind of symbolic way to kind of demonstrate that. But how do we think about infusing respect into our dynamics. So friends, this form of respect goes beyond, as we said, those whom we just deem to be wiser or older than us. Even further, we can work to cultivate our emotional intelligence and sensitivity to be empathic with those in front of us. The rabbis taught one should not rejoice among those who are crying, nor cry among those who are celebrating. Let's go back one slide for just a moment because I, I think it's a good story. Rabbi Avi Herzog, a, a colleague of mine, um, reports that Rabbi Gedalia Dov Schwartz, a rabbi who I used to have a relationship with in Chicago, that a member of a congregation where he, who was this Av Beitin, kind of the head of the city rabbinic council as an elder, regularly prayed at, uh, approached someone, someone approached him um, it, while he was in someone else's synagogue and motioning to the much younger rabbi of the synagogue, Rabbi Schwartz said, in here, he's the rabbi. I can only answer the questions outside the building. Um, and then that person, that congregant approached the Rabbi Schwartz again when they were outside. And only when they were off the, the synagogue property did he agree to answer the question. So that's kind of interesting that he was much wiser, much more knowledgeable in Jewish matters. And when approached, um, with a big question, he said, look, this guy's the rabbi of the synagogue. I don't answer questions in this space. I'm going to wait till I'm off the property. Now think about a 
think about being an in-law um, or being a grandparent. Like how does a grandparent answer a question from a grandchild while on their child's property? Um, and or Or at all, that's kind of an interesting thing to think about in terms of like how one empowers one's children as the parents while also playing a unique role as a grandparent. How does an, you know, um, how does a teacher um, empower a younger teacher in their presence? How does a staff person empower, um, you know, a more junior colleague, it, uh, you know, it, what's their space, you know? And so there's something going on there um, in terms of how we think about those, those dimensions. So anyways, once again, we should not rejoice, the rabbis teach, among those who are crying, nor cry among those who are celebrating. That comes from Derech Eretz Rabbah. Um, and, um, and that kind of relates to this issue of how we're cultivating this emotional intelligence and sensitivity to be empathic with those who are in front of us and those who aren't in front of us. <coughs> but may ultimately hear what's being discussed. Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler, the famed 20th century Mashkiach Ruchani, the spiritual advisor of the Panovich Yeshiva in Israel, he reinforced how our relationships can be transformed by being more kindly in touch with others. Here's one way he taught it. If you make an, an effort to help everyone you meet, you will feel close to everyone. A stranger is someone you have not helped yet. By doing these acts of kindness for everyone, you can fill your world with friends and loved ones. Kind of an interesting way to think of relationships. People we interact with often, how do we change it from transactional to um, friendly? Perhaps the most, the most religious project of Judaism is to emulate the ways of the divine. The contemporary Jewish philosopher, Alan Middleman, who's an academic, wrote this in his book, which I read recently, which I thought I found um, helpful. His book is called Human Nature and Jewish Thought, Judaism's Case for Why Persons Matter. To achieve intellectual apprehension of God, it is necessary to emulate God's attributes of loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness. When Moses asks God to reveal God's presence, God's kavod to him, God reveals God's goodness, tuv, or tov. To, to know God is to know which values are ultimate. So that's interesting. Just reflect on that for a second. To know God is to know what values in our life are ultimate. Why? Because the religious project is to emulate the divine, but the divine is, is, is multiple within the singular. And so which values do you emulate? There's dozens and dozens, and they contradict. But to have the wisdom of which values are most primary in our lives is to know God. Indeed, the Talmudic rabbis stress the same idea in, exp in explaining the well-known verse, this is my God and I shall glorify the Lord, as we say in Exodus. It says over here in the Talmud, Abba Shaul says on this verse, this is my God and I shall glorify the Lord, be similar to God. Just as the Lord is kind and merciful, so too should you be kind and merciful. What if we were all to take our very next human interaction and add just a little bit more joy and kindness into the moment? It could be so contagious. When someone sends light to us, our soul captures this light, but then craves sharing it. If we can all embrace these little sacred moments, we can radically transform ourselves and the world. 
Contemporary teacher of Musar, Alan Marinus, shares in the five books of Moses, the word kindness, chesed, appears 248 times. Generosity, compassion, grace, patience, and love are all held up as divine qualities we are meant to embody in our lives. Now, I don't remember if he quotes this in that book or not, but 248 is significant because according to the rabbis, um, there are 248 positive mitzvot and 248 um, limbs in our in our body. Um, and specific kinds of limbs they're counting. And that means each part of our body, each kind of limb, so to speak, um, is there for a different dimension of chesed to do in the world. And the Torah, we oftentimes quote those of us in immigrant rights work that the Torah quotes love the stranger 36 times. Um, but this is another great one to quote that the, the Torah teaches 248 times, offers the word kindness 248 times. Um, I'm not sure if that's the most common word. I doubt it's the most common word, but it's got to be in the top five. And yet sometimes, well, aside from a word that's like a non-word, like the or is, actually the is not a word in Hebrew, it's just it's just a letter. <laughs> um, but um, some other verbs I'm sure are more common. And yet friends, sometimes we're so busy and so distracted that we don't see what's happening right in front of our eyes. My young, my young, my young son was speaking nonsense, or so I thought he was speaking nonsense. So I tuned him out for a few minutes. Then I tuned back in and I realized what he was explaining to me was the mechanics of how his love for me could travel through invisible tubes, through walls from his heart at school to my heart at, at work. <laughs> and friends, this is the season where we hit our chest for the sins of not listening. <laughs> right? How many things are we tuning out around us that are just so powerful. Political advocacy has its place. And it's one of the ways we can work for change, but it can be so limiting and cannot replace acts of kindness. Outrage at injustice can't replace being a mensch. Identity markers can't replace introspection and self-work. And righteous indignation can't replace regret and apologizing. Having the right, quote unquote, ideology cannot replace praying, donating, repenting. Derek Eretz, our word of the day, our phrase of the day, is about doing, not simply espousing. Yes, we can win with service, social entrepreneurship, grassroots organizing for local causes, bridge building, community building, sustainable development and education. We can't, of course, fully abandon political advocacy, but we need our hearts and minds to be open, and we need to do so now. We need to shift our consumer behaviors to live according to the values we advocate for. We need to bring kindness to every interaction. We need to build compassionate communities. We need to think more creatively and expansively about alternative models of social change. The opportunities for winning, winning, so to speak, are literally everywhere. But we can't lead from the darkness of anger. We need to lead from our inner light. Who's in? Who's in? Because we are all needed in this holy enterprise. Rabbi Elazar taught in the Talmud of Sukkah, the reward for acts of justice and charity depends upon the degree of loving kindness in them. As it is written, so righteousness Justice, charity, tzedakah for yourselves and reap according to your goodness, the chesed. What a brilliant read from the rabbis 
from this wonderful quote in Hosea, who we're quoting twice today, about how charity and justice only work based on the level of chesed that is built into them. I recently had some conversations with the Spinka Rebbe. Now, there's many Spinka Rebbe's in Kiryas Yoel, in Williamsburg, in Israel. This is the one from Brooklyn. And in one of these conversations with the Spinka Rebbe, I asked him what the most important midah, the most important moral and spiritual character trait to master is. He said chesed, kindness. Master chesed and all the other midot will flow from there. And I definitely think he's right. If we come to care for others and cultivate compassion for them, it will be harder to be angry at them and easier to be patient with them. Consider this beautiful teaching from Rav Kook in Orota Kodesh. The general conception of striving for equality, which is the basis of kindness and the, and the pure love of people, is seen in the mystical interpretation as, being, as bringing up the sparks that are scattered among the husks of unrefined existence and in the great vision of transforming everything to full and absolute holiness in a gradual increasing of love, peace, justice, truth, and compassion. Wow, this is like a deep Torah from Rav Cook. Now, this is, of course, tapping into his so socialistic ethos um, as someone who was very much um, inspired by the kibbutz movement um, and the socialist ethos, a, a worker movement of building up the land, where he talks about that equality, striving for equality, is the basis of kindness and of love, right? Seeing that people have what they uh, um, what they need and a level of of reciprocity, a level of equality. But that this is a mystical idea. He says that when we're bringing up the sparks that are scattered within everything, sparks of holiness that we want to liberate and elevate through tikkun olam, that in doing this, that we will see a societal transformation through the elevation of these mystical sparks that lead to an equality that is infused with a love, peace, justice, truth, and compassion in them. Rav Kook continuously urged us to strive for social progress. This was not a political endeavor for him at its core, but a spiritual revolution. In seeing the holy sparks in everything and everyone around, and working in solidarity to elevate them. We can move closer each day to living in a redeemed world that is overflowing with love, peace, justice, truth, and compassion. Friends, you can tell very quickly a, a, a religious person working in politics who is a political person, not, and I don't mean political as a dirty word, and a person who is engaged in political advocacy as a religious person. And, um, and and there I don't mean religious as totally pure. And again, political is totally dirty. But as a very different enterprise, working for a spiritual revolution or a political one, you can tell so clearly. I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. was a politician. But much more than that, he was a spiritualist. He was a religious person. You can feel it in every, in, in every speech he gave. Um, and you can feel that so quickly in others as well and how they how they ultimately advocate and how they treat the people around them, advocating with them. I've started tracking, I, I, on a personal note, I've started tracking the number of unplanned acts of kindness I do each day that have a significant impact on others in need. And I am so completely ashamed and embarrassed at myself when in, in this tracking system. And I encourage us all to kind of engage in some tracking system if that speaks to you. I'm sure you'll come out better than me, but you might also realize how many more opportunities there are each day to embrace intentional giving. In synagogues around the country, we read the creation story 
the first chapters of Genesis each year. It comes at Simchat Torah, right? Because at Simchat Torah, we finish reading Deuteronomy and we start reading Genesis. And then the next Shabbat, we start reading the full um, Parsha of Bereshit. But the creation story is not merely a six-day project relegated to the confines of history, but is rather a story that continues to play out today, right? If you tried to read Genesis as a book of science or a book of history, it's absurd, right? Why would you read it like that? This is like such a silly story. But if you read this as a moral, spiritual story, how profound. And if you read it not as a story of the past, but as a story we're still living today, and here the sage is taught that when a person chooses to perform a good deed without any obligation to do so, God looks down and says, for this moment alone is the worth create." Is it worth creating the world that we're still a part of creation? So friends, let us continue to justify the creation of the world through our acts of derech eretz. Let us continue to expand the creation story as we creatively and compassionately beautify the world together. Because after all, we've all been chosen to be God's partners in creation. Okay, my dear friends, I'd love to hear from you on these themes, on these themes today, if you want to unmute yourself. Hi, Lauren. Hi, I'm not on the train today. Um, I'm back in Toronto, yay. Um, well, the timing, you know, this lecture today is so perfect before we go into the course. Because as we repeat, like the, the aspects of Hashem, 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 El Rachel, Bachanun, El Chapan, Bachesed, the Emet. So, and to me, like human beings being made in the image of Hashem is to, to embody those midot. Um, so it's like, you know, there is nothing more important for the Christ that I really do believe that, you know, as Rav Kook said, everything else emanates from Chesed. And just, you know, a little coin deed can make such a difference to everyone. And yet I see that we're living in a time of such brutality and you know people being so unkind to each other in public um great. so it's something to always think about so thank you so much for this this lecture great great thank you thank you so much and i, I want to just reiterate that beautiful point lauren shared around what these high holiday high holiday season is really about yes it's about challah and agave or honey or whatever you use. Yes, it's about melodies. It's about community. It's about prayer. It's about tzedakah, giving charity. It's about so many things, right? It's about shofar. It's about apologizing and teshuva. But as Lauren reminds us, at the core of it is emulating these divine traits of chesed, of really infusing kindness into our lives, kindness towards ourselves, kindness towards those in our inner sphere and those in our outer sphere. And so thank you, Thank you for um, for sharing that. And also adding joy into the kindness. It's not a sacrifice like this. Oh, another thing on my task list is to go be kind. Like, no, that's not the sustainable way. Like to find joy in infusing kindness into our being and into our spirit and into our relationships, like, and, and find meaning and joy in that. I want to add one other point before I open it up again, which is, again, our phrase today is derech eretz. And derech eretz, um, translates as the way of the land. And that's why some people mean kind of the custom of the land. Um, but the other way to, to, to think about this is the way of the land is that we are all earthlings, right? The way of the land, like we are all from the Aretz. We're all from Adam, Adama. We're all from the earth. 
And in seeing that interconnectivity, that, that, um, um, that commonality, that mutuality, how much um, easier it can be to do that. But I do want to say one last thing about politeness as well. There wasn't another time in my life, and I'm sure anyone else's life here, where in American culture, um, you regularly saw bumper stickers with the F word on it. You know, that there's a certain um, political um, fringe, although it's, I'm not, it's not clear to me it's a fringe anymore, uh, a major political faction, let's call it, that really has a spirit of F you. Like F, the one that the one I saw yesterday, what it said, F your feelings, vote for fill in the blank. Um, and like, what in the world? Like, like, like who would put on their bumper sticker on their bumper? Like F your feelings, like, like that, that is like in any way decent and that that's a part of your political ideology. Like, and I think that like, I know that, you know, political correctness and the like is a, takes a bad rap for some people, like being overly polite rather than being real. And I, and I hear all that, but like, like the limits on our discourse, the limits of like what's acceptable in the public, like, um, the, the, like the, like the let's go Brandon culture, um, you know, which as you know, comes, comes from F you brand, um, F you Biden. Um, this is so sick to me. Um, that like that our discourse is sunk to such a low level. And I think we should like openly reject it and not just reject it like in political advocacy, but reject it in demonstrating a very different way we talk publicly, not just combating it, but like demonstrating, like like putting out the flame, the flames of this hate and this like divisive rhetoric with really this hose of love, this hose of respect of like doubling down on, on a very different approach. Yes, uh, hi, Aglaia. Sarah was first, so let's do Sarah first, okay? Who, who, oh, Sarah, yes. Oh, I, I don't see your hand up, yes, but hi, well, Sarah. I, I put my hand down because I think you may have begun to answer my question. I was struggling to go between this notion of, again, how we interact in the world with good manners. Oh, and, yes, right. and. I was struggling with etiquette, good manners, and how I take my heart and my being into the world. And I guess because I'm still stuck with the book of etiquette that I remember sitting and reading as a child, because it was on the shelf and it was like, okay, let's see what this reference book's about. Um, and that feels so formulaic, uh, so dictatorial in mm. a bizarre fashion, as opposed mm. to living out of my spirit, out of my heart, out of those tubes that connects my heart to your heart, no matter where you are, and our, our, our common humanity. Mm. And I just don't see good manners as being defined in terms of these behavioral tenets that take me back generations and generations and only served in many ways to demoralize and dehumanize others. Mm. Oh, can you say a little bit more about how the formulaic good manners demoralize and dehumanize just so we understand that point sure. better? So I bring a friend to dinner, they may not know 
which fork to use, uh -huh. which oh, I see. to use, how to do things our way, because we're the only ones who do anything properly. Uh, uh. And these people are mm. peasants and they are awful and they don't belong with us. So that's how I, I hear etiquette as opposed to seeing the human being and embracing the stranger, um, finding that loving kindness, which embraces the other. Great, great. I love that, Sarah. So I think there's a great historical component here that Sarah's in, uh, uh, bringing up here around how the proper etiquette was used by a quote unquote upper class um, and really a white, a white class to demoralize those in poverty. Um, you know, look at those. Not just those in poverty. Those who are not born with titles actually has a lot to do with the two. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, that too. Yeah. That, um, yeah, that's great. And, and being able to point out why that's kind of a lower class, you know, um, you know, based on their, their, um, yeah, their access to this protocol, um, which was exclusive. Also, you know, not as, as we all know, Nazi Germany was obsessed with being clean and organized and um, in many ways proper. Like, you know, you don't have garbage in the streets, you know, and certain types of, of etiquette and formalities, um, you know, even, you know, even, you know, and punctuality is another good example. Like in, we still joke in Jewish culture, uh, if you're, uh, if you're a German Jew, you're called yucky. That you say, oh, that's I, I'm I'm very yekish. I'm very yeky like this. That I show up right on time, right? Because normally we joke that you know Jew, uh, what you, Jewish standard time means Jews are always late, right? But if you say, oh, I'm very yekish, I actually show up on time because I'm German, which comes from this German culture of punctuality and the like. And so, um, and so Sarah gives this great reminder of like where are these manners kind of empowering and where are they dehumanizing based upon who has access to this kind of protocol. And that can emerge in a in a number of uh, um, a number of of interesting ways. I want to offer one other point to that, where there might be some forms of etiquette that are really arbitrary. They're arbitrary to some degree, and that in that way they kind of create a hierarchy who has access to the arbitrary law, you know, rules or not. But then there's some rules of respect which we might want not want to throw the the baby out with the bathwater. Um, for example. <clears throat> Um, some people think of holding a door for a person as like a chivalry of the past, right? Like, why would we want to do that? Especially if it's gendered. Um, other people feel like, oh, that's a nice thing when someone holds a door, right? What about if if your meal comes out at a restaurant before someone else's? Should you start eating? Because why would you not start your hot food? Should you wait for their food to come out? Because that's respectful to start your meal at the same time. Should you ask them or wait for them to tell you to start? Right. Like, where do we where do we think of something that is kind of a dinner table etiquette or an entering a building etiquette as something that's respect versus arbitrary? All right. Lots more to say on that. But Aglaia, let's go to you. OK, um, let's just say, OK, um, going with some of the stuff that I heard from um, Sarah. OK, um, I spent too much time studying um, 17th and 18th century France. So to me, anyone being polite is like nails on chalkboard. 
So um, also um, one thing that I have explained to people is that as a historian, everybody's lying to me. All of my primary sources are lying to me um, because if they spoke you know, directly, then they get their heads cut off. You know, they get bumped off. And so unfortunately I have this um, radar for when someone's not, they're being polite and they're not being honest. So for me, um, one of the things that I was thinking, um, what immediately came to my mind is um, the proverb, answer a dullard according to his folly. Mm -hmm. um, in my case, I'm the dullard because I really don't want to listen to that. Um, you have to answer me according to like my folly is, no, be honest and say the F-bomb. Um, if I had a dime for every time I said the F-bomb, uh, I'd be wealthy, you know, that kind of thing. Um, however, though, and so I'm kind of wondering, though, my main point is, is that um, um, whatever, like, I mean, getting back to um, Derek, uh, um, Derek um, Eretz, okay, um, it's going to have to be tailored for individual cases. So in this case, so um, I'm just going to, you know, out myself as the dullard. I really don't want to listen to someone being polite to me. And so, you know, that's just me. Um my friends, if we're not talking trash about you, you're not part of the group, that sort of thing. Um, but it's it's impolite as far as I'm concerned to like, just tell me something that's, that you don't mean and say things that you don't mean. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm. Ah, I see. Yes. Right. So there may be a form of politeness you would accept because it's genuine, like somebody who says please and thank you, and it feels genuine, and a, and a, and a form of politeness that feels like a, um, an, like a form of flattery, or a form of, um, you know, artificial uh, presentation, in a sense, um, right. that, you know, that feels off-putting and actually puts up a barrier, in a sense. Right. right. Great. Yeah. Great. Yep. Awesome. Ethan. Hi, Ethan. And then Toby. Hi, Rabbi. Um, I, I wanted to Sure, a couple of things that I've been, been thinking about. The first is I appreciate that in this room we have a, a lot of people who are realists in the ways that we want to impact the world. Uh, we want to do mm. tangible yeah. good and yeah. not just imaginative theoretical good. And so I'm thinking about the ways in which our society is has been created, the societal norms and sometimes the rules that we have to play by in order to receive donations, to uh, you know get business uh, partners, in order to you know do our work with us, um, so on and so forth, to to make that tangible good that we want. Um, and I'm also then drawn to uh, a hero of mine, and I, Rabbi, I would assume that he's probably one of yours too, Congressman John Lewis, who famously talked about. The, the necessity to do good trouble um, and, and what it looks like to, to try to disrupt uh, the society that we are in, sometimes with uh, actions that may be antithetical to uh, all of these manners and, and good etiquette that, that we're talking about. So those are some of the things that I've been, been thinking about listening to you all. Love that. Love that. Very powerful points from Ethan. Um, thank you. And, and I love bringing in the Lewis aspect as well, because um, I think that we have to think about the disruption we're causing. And um, one rabbi, you know, upset me, but then really caused me to reflect when I, we were organizing a form of protest a, a, a lot of years ago that would close down a street. Um, it would close down a street. And he's like, do you know how many people you're going to make late for work? 
And I was like, you don't get it. You don't care about the cause. Like, what do you mean? That's all you're thinking about? We're doing a protest for this noble cause. I thought about it. I'm like, no, you're right. Like there's people who their livelihood matters. And if they're late for work, that could be really bad for them. And like, like, is there another way we can disrupt without damaging, you know, really damaging? And how do we think about being disruptive and being kind and, um, and being, you know, doing good trouble, like Lewis says, and doing that in the spirit of social activism, you know, and big, big social change work, but in a way that like, um, really, you know, brings more light than, than, um, uh, more light than heat. So thank you. Thank you for that. Um, yes, Toby. Uh, for all y'all who don't know, I was a criminal defense lawyer for 20 odd years, the last 10 of which I did death penalty work. And uh, in that work, a lot of uh, times I would come to impasses with the prosecution. Prosecution in Arizona has all the power uh, and all the money. And uh, as a public defender, I had neither. <laughs> so a lot of times we would be negotiating an alternative settlement to killing my client, <laughs> to be honest, because Arizona actually does execute people. Um, and we would be in a judge's chambers and we would be discussing things and, and um, to sort of echo both Aglaia and Ethan, um, there is some good trouble. You need to be careful about what you do in the judge's chambers. And um, while there were many times when I would have loved to drop the F-bomb, I wasn't, uh, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have helped my clients. So the bottom line was there was a very narrow line that we walked and sometimes I will admit I stepped way over it in order to save my client's life. I felt it was necessary. And, and uh, Rabbi, this sort of looks at what you were saying too, that um, is there another way to try and save this person's life. And uh, sometimes there just wasn't. Right, right. So yeah, that, yeah, that's very interesting. I'm always very struck when I'm in the courtroom at your honor, your honor, your honor. I mean, it's it's it, when you're not in the in the courtroom every day or every week. It's 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 very it's a very strange dynamic, um, and and the formalities of the courtroom. That, I mean, I, I've been in courtrooms mostly because of foster care uh, hearings, where uh, people who um, have never been there have no clue what's happening. They, they don't know if they just won, they lost, like they don't know what, like what the judge has decided. And like their lawyers constantly whispering to them, here's what's going on, as you know, Toby. And so, um, you know, in a language of formalities. And I think that the same thing happens. I think this is some reason why spiritualists uh, struggle with religion, because there's so many formalities in a religious space, or certainly a Jewish prayer service, a traditional one. They say, well, I don't know what's going on. I don't want to be embarrassed. Everyone's standing. When do I stand? When do I sit? I don't know the Hebrew, you know, right? Like these formalities, I don't always know what to do. Um, and then, then you look at foreign um, foreign policy and ambassadors and those who don't know the etiquette of the country they're visiting. And when they get it wrong, they get mocked all over social media. Like everyone takes a dig at them if it's the opposite party that like, oh, look, like they didn't know how to interact in this country. And all of a sudden, like, like um, we, we really value a respect for another's culture means knowing their etiquette. And because you did X, Y, or Z, you know, you disrespected their etiquette. And, um, and that becomes kind of a, a big deal in foreign policy and how we think about those, those, the, uh, those relationships. Um, I, I wanted to add just one other thing around polite speech where, where my wife is my teacher, uh, in, um, as she is in so many ways. And um, the way she talks to customer service agents on the phone, I'm like all business. I'm like all business. Like, uh, I'm like, I, I'm here to get something done as fast as I can. She's joking with them. 
she's laughing, you know, she's complimenting them, you know, they're having a great time. I, I thought that I, I say, who, who are you on the phone with? Is that your friend from high school? She goes, Oh no, no, I was calling Verizon wireless, Verizon wireless. You're like laughing with 20, you know what I mean? So like, but he's not doing it. You know, he's doing, he's like, customer service has got to be a hard job. Like you get a lot of angry people who call you, you know, like I'd like to make, and these people, I hear them on the other end. Sometimes they're so grateful for how she talks to them, you know? So, so I mean, this is another reminder of how like some form of politeness is just, um, is just fake and superficial and other parts, like people who are just used to being trampled on all day, like appreciate a little bit of kind spirit in the tone of voice and, and the like, but to just, you know, to circle back to Toby's point and, and how it reinforces kind of what Ethan and Aglaia were saying there is as well of like, sometimes we got to cross over. Sometimes we really got to cross over. And Toby's was doing it to say like literally save a life of a client because, you know, if she doesn't get a little more aggressive, maybe aggressive is not the right word, assertive, let's say, you know, um, to cr cross the protocols of the courtroom, then there's real high stakes. And, um, and I, I think we might experience that in our own lives as well as when we have to kind of break the protocol, you know, for, for a real reason, a, a story you've heard me share before, but a, is a good case of breaking the protocol is where a guest at the Shabbos tables accidentally spills their kiddish and gets it all over the table. And the rabbi then spills their kiddish on the table, right? So that person's not embarrassed, right? Intentionally breaking the etiquette. So someone else who has not knowingly broken the etiquette. Well, I mean, it's not, it's hard to call etiquette, like not spilling on the table, whatever you call that a mistake, right. Is, is, is a little less embarrassed. Um, so, okay. Okay. Lauren. Hi, Lauren. Okay. I'm a Canadian. I haven't said this in a while as a Canadian. I got to stand up for good manners because it's so much a part of our culture and I'm so grateful for it. And the, the 180 degree opposite is Israeli. I'm not saying this to bash Israelis, but let's yeah. face it, right. they are not the most polite people. <laughs> and I'm telling least. you, when, when you're getting off the train and they're getting off the train and you're playing bumper cars with each yeah. other, yeah. I'm telling you, it makes no sense. Yeah. You know? If you yeah. stand to the side, you wait for everybody else to get off first. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> it works. It works better. <laughs> right. And when someone is being rude to me and they say, oh, well, you Canadians aren't honest. You're just always nice. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah, because it works. Yeah. And I don't care if somebody who stands up and gives me a seat is right. being dishonest and giving me a seat. Guys, giving me a seat. I'm thankful for it. And if you're just sitting there with your bags on an empty chair, not wanting to give me a seat, right, right. that's not nice. Yeah, totally. So there's a lot to be said for good manners. There's a lot to be said for queuing up and everything else that Canadians do. Can I tell a quick joke? When, uh, when, when God made Canadians, the angels were going, oh my God, they're so nice, they're so nice. Thank you for making them. And God says, oh yeah, watch this, and drops a hockey puck. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one Love time it. we're not nice. Love it. Love it. But um, uh, uh, by the way, if any of you have any connection to Dick Sporting Goods, you can tell them, as I was talking about hockey, that they have done an egregious error down here in Arizona by offering every sport in their store except hockey. I took my son yesterday to use a gift card from, from, uh, from my mother because he wanted to finally get his first hockey stick. And they had literally every sport, sports you've never even heard of, hundreds of them. Like, uh, I mean, uh, Steve, you play pickleball. They got a like, cucumber ball, watermelon ball. It's like everything you've never even heard of. Like, no hockey, uh, no hockey. 
So well, I said, what is going on here? I mean, so anyways, yeah, so anyways, uh, thank you for that. And, and since we're really quickly, sorry. Okay. Yeah, just one, just one thing before Claire. One other thing about Canada. And Fine. on a sad note, um, we send condolences to our, our our neighbor on this terrible attack that just happened uh, in recent days. And um, and I think this this far right political argument is wrong. But we see an ounce of truth of it here that it's not the gun that kills people; it's the person. You see how many person can be killed, how many people can be killed with a knife instead of with a gun. Um, and so there's an ounce of truth to that argument that it's. It's not the gun that kills people, it's the shooter. Nonetheless, um, that's also wrong. I mean, Canada has, has much better gun uh, gun violence policies than, than the US, of course. And this kind of thing can still happen. Nonetheless, um, we should follow, I think, you know, Canada's path on, on you know, reining in these violent weapons. But anyways, our, 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 our deepest condolences to, to our Canadian friends. And I, and I very much echo your point at how rude Israelis are um, and how sometimes that feels really powerful. Um, you know, I, I came to kind of, Kind of like that, and sometimes I just could never get around it—the cutting in line, the, the pushing this and that. And you're right; uh, how kindness just works better for a society to operate in many ways. It's just very hard. Yes, uh, um, Aglaya, then and then Cheryl. Oh, sorry. Okay, so I just showed off that I have really bad manners. Okay, because I interrupted. But anyway, though. <laughs> okay, so all right, not to go all postmodernist on everyone though, but I just felt like going all postmodernist. Um, Etiquette, though, like, how do we even define good manners versus etiquette versus anything, you know, because for me, um, I'm brutally honest about certain things with people because, like I said, nails on chalkboard, but if someone is an older person and I have a seat, I'm going to offer them my seat, but I don't necessarily think of that as etiquette. I think of that in a completely different way. Like you were saying, good manners, you think of the napkin on your lap, Okay. Again, napkin on the lap to me isn't the same thing as, okay, so someone is in their 80s, there's a couple in their 80s, and then my friend and I are like going to a restaurant, and I said, okay, we're going to let the couple in their 80s go ahead of us, you know, I don't know, I mean. Yeah, so I think one distinction I would make, and you'll tell me, y'all will tell me if it works for you or not, mm -hmm. between just etiquette and kindness in this regard, is when it becomes socially expected, in a way that when it's not done, it hurts a little bit more. If I'm 90 and I'm and I'm standing on the bus while the teenager is sitting next to me, it hurts a little bit more because our society expects that teenager to stand up for me, right? Is there do they have to stay right? It's not just a kindness. A kindness would sort of be oh, it's actually not socially mandated or expected in a sense. So it hurts me a little bit more when when somebody clearly could hold the door and instead they kind of race through and slam it because it's kind of expected in society the person's going to hold it. Yes, I could open my own door. And so I wonder if that works for folks, this distinction between kind of an etiquette and kindness of when a form of etiquette is, is it's going to hurt a little more that I don't get it because I, because I, I expect to get, not that I'm entitled to it, but it, but it's just normal that we're going to see this kind of thing happen. Hi, Cheryl. Hello. Um, this is really troubling me. I, I think we're forgetting human nature too. Uh, I mean, so, uh, you can say, well, you're brought up a certain way and certain ways are expected, but I think that there's an, you know, some things are innate also. You know, you are the type of, you are who you are and there's certain ways, you know, um, um, Stan and I are completely opposite in so many ways, you know, and um, he gets away with certain things that maybe it's a guy thing, 
but also maybe that's his that's his nature and um it doesn't mean that he's not a kind person but and that but he always makes fun of me because i will say well so and so is well meaning and he thinks that's a curse <laughs> if you say he's well meaning that, that that i'm being critical and i'm not really being critical so i think there's in a some sort of innateness in in kindness too and not you know, I, I, yes, I understand the etiquette and we could say, we can reflect and say, oh, it's this generation, they're not bringing up their children right and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. But I think that human nature has a lot to do with this too, so. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's very interesting to think about. Thank you, Cheryl. Hi, Steve. Thank you. Um, first to Aglaia, the women with whom I play pickleball have the best smack talk in the world. There's not one guy who can compete with them other than in pickleball uh, with, with their smack. It is so funny. Number two, <laughs> and th this is not an act of kindness, but more of gratitude. And Eddie, I'll, I'll hurry up right here. Um, three weeks ago, I had trouble understanding a certain concept. And that concept was how do the disadvantage and quote unquote poor reach out to others as much as the people with advantage. And Toby and Eddie unwittingly gave me the answer. They helped me walk through my own path of darkness. Uh, Toby talked about the experience she had in shelters and how some of the people there would reach out and hug and, and, and help others. And Eddie gave me a great question. It depends on how you define poor. And, and so I, I, it, it just helped me so much. And I have to say, everybody in the panel does that with their questions. The idea of etiquette and, and culture, the other day on the pickleball court, uh, a young woman complimented me, as, as crazy as this might sound, on a, a shot that I made. And I said, oh my goodness, bless your heart. And she nearly fell over an apoplexy because she always thought that bless your heart was faux and gratuitous and, and something that really held no meaning, which to me was, was fine, but I guess not. Anyway, I've taken up too much time. Thank you, everybody, Toby and Eddie, especially for holding me my hand three weeks ago. Beautiful. And what a kind spirit to remember what others have shared and reflect back that gratitude. It's very very moving as you always do, Steve. Friends, we wish you a beautiful day and um, we look forward to continuing our reflections on, on kindness in our lives next week. Have, see you soon. Have a great day.